0: Hello and welcome to the Film Comment podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold and I'm the editor in chief of Film Comment. Last week, we bid a very sad farewell to our digital producer, Violet Luca. She's hosted this podcast brilliantly for over two years and we'll miss her terribly. And we can't wait to follow her work at Harper's Magazine. You'll see a feature from her in our next issue, and if we can coax her back to the podcast, which I hope we can, you'll hear from her here as well. But the show must go on, as they say, and this week, we present a special episode recorded live. This summer, we began a series of live film comment-free talks at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Our next one will be with Boots Riley, the director of Sorry to Bother You in July. But first, for the release of Hereditary, The new horror sensation, we invited director Ari Aster for a chat. The talk was moderated by Film Society editorial director Michael Koreski, who also wrote about the movie for the current issue of Film Comment. Without further ado, let's join Michael and Ari Aster.
1: (laughs) Welcome, Ari. Thank Uh, you. Thank you, everyone, for coming. This is the Eve. Of the film's release, can I say that? I guess it's also technically the first day of the film's release.
2: Yeah, I guess midnight. The midnight shows begin. So um, today,
1: I don't, I, and because the film technically hasn't come out yet, I don't want to spend too much time today talking about details of the film or giving things away or t- you know. I, I do want to touch on the film quite a bit because. You know you're here, but I also it'd be great to talk about influences and and just ideas you have around cinema and some things about horror. Even though I know it's not necessarily um, you consider yourself a horror director, even though you've made an absolutely terrifying film. I was wondering how to start this, and I was going back through. Notes that I made in the in the follow up conversation that we had to, to the interview that we had done, and you know I, I was scribbling things down, and a lot of things don't get used. But I was looking back over notes, and I I noticed that I had written down gave birth to him while watching Fanny and Alexander. Oh. Is that true, <laughs> or did I make this up? <laughs> I did give birth to
2: him while watching <laughs> Fanny. Uh, my my mom likes to tell me that she. that she was in labor with Fanny and Alexander playing. I'm not sure if that's, I guess that's possible. I mean, I I believe her. Um, (laughs) um, And that's like one of my favorite films. So it's very, it's strange. So I clearly
1: wanted to start at the beginning, which is why I brought that up.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That's when I knew I
1: loved movies. (laughs) Another thing you had mentioned was that Cries and Whispers was was, uh, Ingmar Bergman's film Cries and Whispers was a big influence. We are talking about the ways families deal with the death and mourning. So I'm actually really interested, before we get into the specifics of the film, or even of horror films, um, how you see, um, like, what filmmakers who one wouldn't necessarily think of as horror filmmakers were influential on this film.
2: Um, Well, Ingmar Bergman is definitely important to me, Um, and Cries and Whispers was a film that I screened for the crew. I think it's maybe, for my money, maybe the best film I've ever seen about suffering, and and one of the most painful films about death and sisterhood, not that I have any insight into that. Yeah, and Hereditary is ultimately a film about suffering, and one that um, (laughs) takes suffering seriously, or hopes to, tries to, and... uh, yeah, in some ways, scenes from a marriage was on my mind. Um, it just there, there's a, a real emotional brutality to that film, but really to everything. I mean, there there are monologues in, in in scenes from a marriage that are like so, or scenes from a marriage that are are so devastating. But like that, but that monologue seems to make it into every Bergman film. Like it's usually a man decimating a woman, um, and in this case, it's it's. Um, in, in the case of hereditary, there, there are things said that can't be unsaid mm-hmm. that don't really, mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, it's people purging
1: things, but ultimately it doesn't really solve anything. Yeah. The um, film at the, I'm uh, sorry, the scene at the, at the dinner table, of course, which you will see is um, probably for me, maybe the scariest scene because of the way that the family and the way they interact and the way the mother talks to her son around grief and the, 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 the the refusals to actually deal with things in a direct way, but just bringing it out as anger.
2: Right. Yeah. The original cut of the film was much longer. It was, it was about three hours. There are about thirty scenes that are not in the uh, the film that's coming out today. Although I do I do consider this, you know, to be like the the definitive cut. But there were a lot more uh, <laughs> scenes of people avoiding communication, and you know, like somebody entering a hallway as a door closes, like scenes like that, um, just kind of painstakingly chronicling the breakdown of communication. Um, but then the original script and I, I guess the assembly cut had, well, the, the dinner scene was actually a, 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 a three-scene sequence that began at the dinner table and then um, continues in, in the bedroom with Annie and Steve mm-hmm. arguing, and then continues into Peter's bedroom where Steve comes to console Peter. And we, it, it, it really just, it, we, we found that it was m- much more powerful to just, to just end on that dinner scene and then have the things that are said there, like just hang in the air and... I mean, the stuff that happens at the end of the film serves as sort of a payoff for like what isn't resolved there.
1: There's something sort of radical, even in the cut that's out about the film, because it's it's a domestic drama, it's a family drama, it's all about family and the horrors of family, um, and you have these horror elements that kind of are gently sprinkled throughout. So the the idea of this three-hour family drama with even less horror because there's more family drama is sort of amazing to me. I hope it's something that we will get to see perhaps at some point.
2: Yeah, I like to say, you know, one day you might be able to see just how boring this movie <laughs> can, ac- <laughs> can actually be. Yeah, it's funny because, um, God, I, I'm gonna repeat something I've been saying a lot lately. Um, I've, I've, I, was t- I was telling you earlier that I've like I've, I've reached new levels of self-loathing just hearing <laughs> myself say the same thing over and over again but the way i was i was pitching the film when i was first taking it around was as a family tra- tragedy that warps into a nightmare and i you know i i really wanted it to be a slow build that like slowly 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 ramps up and ultimately the movie tells you what it wants in the edit and y- either you listen to that or you don't to your peril and it took me a while to give in and, and you know, prioritize pacing over, uh, you know, preciousness and, and you know, loving this shot and not wanting to let it go or, you know, or feeling that, like, you know, knowing this helps this later, but ultimately hurts, hurts pacing and hurts rhythm. And, and so now the ramp up is much more accelerated and everything we did lose was ultimately in in the service of character development. And so all the horror stuff is, is there. None of that left because it was all kind of essential to the story. Yeah. But it's funny because things that really felt necessary in the script suddenly feel tacked on in a cut when, when you have actors imbuing these things into, you know, into their performance. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know.
1: Um, another, uh, one of the things that you had talked about with me earlier also and it was in relation to Bergman saying Cries and Whispers but in many other films was what scares you the most in terms of um, film style is artifice and this, I, this was really interesting to me um, that there are filmmakers who because everything is so super mannered and styled in a certain way that from an early age you had a very visceral almost horror response to it even though they're not horror films
2: yeah, well, I think it began with me just being really upset by kitsch. Um, like as a kid, like The Wiz just horrified me. Uh, well, the Wiz is really scary. The Wiz is uh, just a nightmare. Um, in fact, The Wiz is still, it, it's very hard to scare me. I'm not, I'm not gonna watch The Wiz. Um, and, re- and Return to Oz, did anybody see the re- Return to Oz?
1: Ugh, that was I, traumatic. I, yeah, it's. Ugh. I mean, it opens with <laughs> Dorothy getting electroshock treatment. Yeah, it's kind of. It's kinda, It's really ballsy, actually. Wait,
2: somebody interesting directed that. It was like. I think it's Walter Murch. I was gonna say Walter Murch. Yeah. Okay,
1: then it must be because I was gonna. I. I was afraid to. Yeah. Famous sound designer did Apocalypse Now. But I don't know how many. How many films he made? This might have been. Was it his only film?
2: Yeah, and and just and you know, camp bothered me, but then there were certain films growing up that really really just insinuated themselves into my consciousness uh and the the thing that kind of links them all is that they're all they they're all very very brazen about their use of artifice um Peter Greenaway is the big one. The Cook, the Thief, His Wife and Her Lover was something I saw when I was w- like way too young. I think I was like 13, and my dad had talked about it scaring him. And my dad, you know, never talked about anything scaring him. <laughs> A lot of movies piss him off, but like that, <laughs> but that one really bothered him. Um, what so, was it about that film that scared both of you? Well, I never even talked talked to him about it because I snuck the movie. Like I was I was going out to rent my movie on Friday after school, and I snuck. I I, I put. Uh, the cook, the thief into like, you know, into another movie c co- like VHS cover. It was like <laughs> Encino man or something. And then, and then I, I proceeded to watch a movie that I would regret watching for the next <laughs> four years. And then I like two years later, I, I like worked up the nerve to watch uh, a bootleg copy be, because it's not available in the States of the baby of Macon, mm-hmm. um, oh, right. uh, which is, even more horrible, um, but uh, um, yeah, there's some. I mean, there's something about like the sickly theatrical lighting that he got from Sasha Vierne, and you know, and and just uh, especially in *The Cook, the Thief*, what he does with production design and costume design, where um, you know every room is kind of color coded. It's it's either like deep red or deep white, um, or uh, or neon vomit green, mm-hmm. and you'll have these tracking shots um, where you follow characters from one room to another and in one room, they're wearing a green suit for the, the, for the kitchen, which is green. And then when they enter the, uh, the red room, it, um, their colors somehow become red. And it's a very, it, it has a, this nightmarish power. I I also I mean his that that film also bothers me and and many others by him because he he does strike me as an authentic misanthrope mm-hmm. who like is is like you know kind of disgusted by the human body and obsessed you know by decay and um and but, but then also kind of like you feel that he's also kind of disgusted by the human condition, like it just like he. he I don't know. I, I'm I, he, he's a very clinical filmmaker um, who who's like who's working with stories about cruelty, but it, it the, there's this. Like godlike, omniscient perspective that just like feels nothing for these people. But maybe irritation that, that they're not being harmed mm. further.
1: So would you consider that something that frightens you more than something that influences you? Because Hereditary is a film that feels like it cares deeply about its characters.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I wouldn't... I don't know. I, I don't know if I'd want to make a film that feels like The Cook, The Thief, but that film was just so vivid for me um, that I I that I just became fascinated by it and I just find that I, I keep referencing it indirectly. And, uh, and I don't know how to make a horror movie without thinking of that film or without thinking of the other film that scared me as a kid, which was Carrie. Which is actually a very empathetic film. Yeah, I the mean, opposite. it took me years to watch it again. When I was a kid, that film really bothered me. The images from that film, like, I... I they 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 followed me around, but I watched it again recently, and I was really surprised to see just how campy it was. And I shouldn't have been I shouldn't have been surprised because that's like Brian De Palma. Yeah, it's like this deeply sorrowful um, and deeply campy horror comedy. I don't know. It's yeah, th- that's an amazing film.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, growing up, uh, I watched Carrie a lot, but I always wanted to turn the video off. Bef- before the pig's blood dropped. <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of a strange thing because you're waiting for this catharsis the whole film, but then when the film delivers it, it's kind of like the wrong catharsis. Right, well, because, yeah, I mean, he, he
2: takes such care to make sure that we are uh, in total sympathy with her. Um, she is such a sympathetic character. And, but she's also an irritating character because she, she's such a victim and we just want her to fucking like, do something, and then she does it, and it's it, it like it's it's a betrayal.
1: Yeah, uh, hereditary is similar in a way. I mean, you you kind of draw people in, ask for the ask for the audience's sympathy, and then you betray them. <laughs> I think.
2: Yeah. No. No. I mean, I yeah the yeah the ending is pretty apocalyptic, in, in hereditary, um, things do not work out for anybody. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. Um, I don't wanna, nobody in here has seen the film, it seems, so I'm not gonna say anything, but I will say that it is a success story in in some ways. I agree with that. It's a happy ending for somebody.
1: (laughs) Actually, for multiple people. It depends on what plane we're talking about, what plane of awareness, (laughs) but yes, you're totally right. Okay, to move on from that, because I know that I'll say something really spoilery if I keep talking about that, Um, I was really fascinated also to learn that you are a huge Mike Lee fan, which I I suppose does kind of tie back into the idea of the film as uh, like a family drama or a film about uh, people and how they interact, and um, I remember you had talked about another year being something that sort of profoundly moved and disturbed you
2: oh yeah, Another Year is really amazing. That, yeah, that sneaks up on you, because you think you're watching a movie about a happy couple with a happy son <laughs> and a sad friend, but then it turns out that you're watching a movie about like a doomed woman who's responsible for her own like unhappiness. It's, it, yeah, that's an amazing film. Um, Mike Lee, yeah, I mean, M- Mike Lee is just an inspiration to me. He's, I mean, I don't know how he even could be an influence given that, like, nobody can work the way that he does. I mean, any insight I have is is from what I've read, but, you know, he works for six months, right, with actors, like the best actors in England, which I guess means the best actors in the world, right? And and he does these, like, very elaborate improvisations um, and builds these histories and... and uh, these dynamics between these people um, that become incredibly lived in because in fact they are. And then he goes off and writes a script and then he makes a film and it's a masterpiece almost every time around. And even when he was working only for the BBC and making TV movies, they are like better than anything. And people never really talk, I mean, it, he, people get so caught up in how vividly realized his like character work is that that they often forget to just talk about him as a craftsman, and he's just a fucking great filmmaker. Um, His work with Dick Pope is like amazing, and I, yeah, from the production design to the
1: music in his films, like, yeah, he's, yeah, he's really exciting to me, Um, yeah. I mean, mean, one of the reasons I I bring it up is because I am interested in your work with the actors in the film, especially for, Debut feature—it's extremely impressive, and I'm sure that most people here, even if you haven't seen the film, have been hearing about all the talk that Tony Collette's been getting. Um, much deserved. Not just her; Alex Wolff is amazing in the film. There's a lot of great performances, um, but they're very emotionally raw performances. And I'm, uh, how did you work with these amazing actors in your first film? Like, wh- how did you get to that place with them? I mean, it's all really in the script. So
2: I I really feel like the work I did there was in the writing and then I cast the film and and I ha- luckily had you know very intelligent actors who knew what was required and they came equipped and you know I'm I'm somebody who I compose a shot list before I really talk to anybody in the crew because I I just I need to see the movie in my head before I can really talk about what's needed. Um, and then I'll, I'll sit down with my cinematographer, pa- um, Pavel Pogorzelski who I've been working with since uh, I went to AFI, and, uh, and my production designer, Grace Yuen, who's wonderful. And I'll take them through the shot list, shot by shot. And that's a process that took about three weeks, five hours a day, Um, And then we all have the movie in our head, and then we're we're we're, and so we're all working towards that, and and then we have a dialogue about that movie that you know and 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 the shot list gets better and everything gets better, and but part of that is you know the blocking is kind of worked out then, so in that way I you know I I I've blocked the movie out and that can be somewhat constraining to the actor, or at least I think it's 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 constraining if you've done it. Uh, if you've If you've done it poorly and sometimes you find out you have um, but um, but you try to i i tried tr- try to block things out in a way that like frees the actor to do what the scene requires of them um, and but then also for them to find something new um, but um, that's really the work with the actor. It, or, or, or that's my work with the actor. It's it's um, first like imagining a film and imagining a performance and, and mapping
1: out blocking
2: for the script I've written, and then and then giving them the script, and then later on giving them the blocking.
1: So you have, I mean, so there's, I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of detail, a lot of planning, but then a certain amount of that rigidity. It sounds like from what you're saying, sort of has to go away once the actors are in the space. It's not like you know, as an extreme example, like stories about the way Terrence Davies works on set, right, where he's had some, he works in a very particular way, everything, everything has to be the exact shot that he has had in his head from the beginning, and some actors find it very constraining. And we've talked about Terrence Davies, and I i love Terrence Davies, but you feel that. I mean, his
2: his films are, um, you know, he works with tableaus and... and um and that's part of the beauty of his work. Um, they're, they're very singular films, um, especially *Distant Voices, Still Lives*, and, and *Long Day Closes*. Yeah, I mean, no, you you have to be fluid about it, and you have to you and, and you have to be able to um, throw things away if they're not working, uh, and especially if they're not working for the actor. Um, but I I find. Production to be like not a very creative time. You know, it's very stressful. Um, there were days where we, where we had to get shoot 10, 12 scenes a day. And, um, and so you're just racing. Um, and, and when you're racing like that, I find that I am just leaning sometimes blindly on my
1: plans yeah and did I mean, did you feel the same way from your early shorts i I, I wonder um, if if anyone in the room if you haven't seen hereditary, perhaps you've seen any of his early shorts because I strongly recommend his first film, The Strange thing about the Johnsons. Um, and I don't think I want to tell you what happens in it <laughs> if you haven't seen it, but it's one of those um, genuine jaw droppers, and I don't think that there are that many of those that's it's a term that people use. I really made my jaw drop, but this actually will make your jaw drop. She's like, this can't be what I'm watching. Um, so, but but even from that early film, there was there was a very distinct style to it in in the way you were working with actors. I don't necessarily see it is the same as hereditary, but the way that you're placing people in front of the camera, the way you're dealing with compositions. Well, <clears throat> I mean that that is,
2: and a lot of my shorts are are, are movie movies, right? Like that is very much a tongue in cheek like update on the Can melodrama um or like a perversion of the Can melodrama but uh, but I mean, even if you look at what Cirque was doing then like it was very subversive um so really just an update um, um i think uh but then but then you remove the tongue from the cheek just enough to confuse everybody um, that's a Melodrama about, uh, or really like a soap opera, like a like a, an overripe soap opera about a, uh, a a son who is molesting his father. Um, there you go. I wasn't going to give it away, but you it was it's it, it was.
1: I made it in a different climate. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what the difference eight years make? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so I was thinking more about a Strange thing about the Johnsons and your short, uh, Munchausen, or Munchausen, depends on who's saying it, I guess, right. which are both movies about um, control and families and like how families keep up appearances and how they feel they need to kind of control their environments and Hereditary has so much of that as well. I'm wondering with this through line that I've seen threaded through your films about family, do you, do you see this as like a grand theme that, you, that you're exploring as a filmmaker? In some way, those films, those shorts are—I
2: mean—they're pretty academic, and they're kind of like about, like you know, idealized American depictions of families. Like Munchausen has a lot of like Norman Rockwell Americana about it. You know, it's also—it's also like it's—it's—it's it, it's, it's meant to look like a live-action Disney movie, but in, but then like the content like darkens into something else. But the aesthetics like don't bother acknowledging that. And so I—I I wanted this to be less academic in that sense um you know i want i want hereditary to be in, in that way i think hereditary actually like owes a greater debt to the uh the melodrama than um than to the horror film but but he, but even maybe more than more than uh, um the johnsons does because i think it aims to be well first it does aim to be an unabashed horror movie and i hope it I, I hope it's a really good horror movie. But, I, but it, it also it is um, kind of in that melodramatic tradition of, you know, it, 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 it's about people going through extreme emotions and the film kind of aims to be as big as those emotions. It kind of, it, it, you know, it, it, it's expressionistic in the same way that, like, I, I, that I think you know, my favorite melodramas are in that the form really strives to like, match the content And so, you know, the idea with Hereditary was to make a film that, like, functioned first as uh, a family drama about people going through very horrible things and trying to navigate their way through grief and loss, but then not being able to, and the movie ends up kind of collapsing under the weight of everything they're trying and failing
1: to carry. I don't know. Um, It it strikes me hearing what you're saying about... Um, camp and artifice and those things having scared you growing up that strange thing about the Johnsons and Munchausen actually are that they achieve that. And um, but hereditary has a slightly more realist um, tone to it like you you'd say that there there are there's a certain amount of melodrama to it but actually while you're watching it um, there's no distance as a viewer you you become quite involved in these people's lives so when these terrible things happen it hits you on a very gut level were you con- kind of consciously moving away from that camp aesthetic that you had more in your shorts
2: yeah i was i i didn't want this to feel like a movie movie <laughs> you know I, I i i didn't want this to be it's funny cuz I didn't, but then at the same time the film is like packed with horror conventions and tropes and like clichés. And I feel like that's part of the joy of working in genre is that like the task is always to breathe new life into a dead horse because the formula is like it's set. And if you're going to deviate from the formula so much that you're that 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 you're avoiding clichés at all costs, like it, it kind of ceases to be a genre film somehow. And so but anyway, to answer your question, I did. I did want the film to be grounded in, I guess, our reality as opposed to a movie reality. But at the same time, you know, we 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 built um, the entire house on a stage, um, so everything interior in the Graham House was built from scratch. Um, and one reason we did that, beyond the fact that we wanted to remove walls and we needed and we wanted to, you know, create spaces that would accommodate a dolly and a lot of camera movement was that we were going for this dollhouse aesthetic um, and we did want to kind of dwarf this family and their environment at different times and and it was it it was important to me that that the that the house begin as a home albeit like a a, a fraught one you know that was already troubled from the beginning but then gradually become increasingly unhomelike
1: and um, uh, you had also said that the way that it, the the method around building the literal dollhouses in the film sort of had a lot to do with how the larger built uh, set was built, which I found really interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it
2: became a logistical nightmare, and we we knew it would, but we didn't. But I don't know. It it we 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 learned like a lot of obvious lessons that just weren't obvious to us um, because we you know we were building uh well first before we were building anything we were you know designing this house to be built in park city on a on a sound stage but then we also had a miniaturist steve newburn who also did the prosthetics for the film in toronto who was waiting for our designs so that he could start replicating them and so what that you know so that means that he's not just waiting for you know like what are the dimensions of of the space, you know, like what what, what are, are are the dimensions of the rooms and you know what 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 uh, you know what what's this like frame that I'm building, but what what kind of, you know what 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 does the wood paneling look like? what is the wallpaper? what are the drapes over the windows? like are there plants in any of these rooms like what what are those plants um, and and then like are, what what are they potted in, right? Um, and like, um, what what uh, what's the blanket on the bed? You know, etc. Um, and like, are there posters on the wall? If you know, if so, get those rights now. You know, um, so you know, we made sure that we got him the uh, you know, the dimensions and everything right away. And it's like, well, that's we can do that you know in a weekend. Like, we need we need the dressing. Um, so we ended up having to settle on the dressing of the house like, month, like a, cu- a couple months in advance of, of shooting these things. Um, and, uh, and so it, 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 it was so tight and so hectic that we actually had the miniatures coming in like the day that we were shooting
1: them and we had pushed all of that material to the very end of the shoot. So all the scenes with Tony Collette in the dollhouses, those, those were the last things that you shot? Basically, yeah. for the film, that was that was that was. The people who haven't seen it again, like this, this dollhouse aesthetic is very central to the film. It's not just um, like a throwaway thing. It's kind of this thematic thing that ties the movie together visually. Yeah. Um, and there are scenes that are gone that are not in the movie
2: with with uh, miniatures that you know are never seen, oh. which is which is
1: so depressing. Which will again, which we'll see. I hope, <laughs> but we'll see those scenes. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> um, I when I think of that. I think of The Shining. I can't help, obviously, um, I, I, I do believe that The Shining, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who thinks this, is probably the most aesthetically influential yeah. film of the last 40 years. I don't even think just horror film, probably any American film. Um, I think that's just come to pass. And that happens with movies that are roundly rejected when they first came out, right? It was just so radical. People hated The Shining when it came out. It was just too radical. And now every movie People wants hated to be The People hated
2: Night of out. the Hunter when, when that first came out. People and Peeping Tom. Tom. And Vertigo.
1: Yeah. Vertigo um, Sp- was disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> just didn't follow that movie. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, it just has such an upsetting. Right, so it's it. the same woman? <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. I love it. she's Carlotta <laughs> and why should I care? It's probably what they're <laughs> yeah. thinking. But I bring up The Shining because in The Shining you do, you do have this, um, this famous scene where Jack Nicholson's um, standing over the model of the hedge maze and then of course there's the real hedge maze. And I thought of that a lot while, um, while I was watching the film and I'm saying that it was a direct reference or anything. But The Shining aesthetic being so important to horror filmmakers, I'm wondering as someone who doesn't necessarily consider himself a horror filmmaker per se, even though you've made a great one, are and there? I, and I love the horror genre, and, I, and, I, and this is a horror movie, and I'm proud of that,
2: you know? Yes, so. of
1: course. But I'm wondering if there were actual, are there horror filmmakers that you do find uh, have to have been influential? Oh, yeah. Um,
2: I mean, Nicholas Rogue, Don't Look Now is an obvious touchstone I love walkabout, I love bad timing. Insignificance is cool. <laughs> yeah, insignificance is great. And what, 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 what he did with montage was like really radical, especially for somebody who, like you and I talked about this, but for somebody who began as a cinematographer, he, he really had the, the heart of, of, of an editor. Just, he was really brutal with, um, with with his images, but he also he 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 like developed this style where like he he he, he crafted these montages where there were these like psychic connections between images that were. I, I, it's very hard to talk about what he did because um, it's a tonal thing more than anything, but um, he, he was pretty remarkable. And then um, uh, Roman Polanski, like early Polanski. I, I would say from Repulsion to Chinatown. So like Repulsion, Cul-de-sac, Rosemary's Baby, Macbeth, and Chinatown. Are so like You're leaving out the tenant quite specifically. I am. Well, it dep- I think the tenant gets better or worse based on like the dubbing you're watching it with. Um, but, um, but I, I do love the tenant, but I, I, I think it's like just like a notch below those. And I think Tess is like just a, a notch below those, and I love those films too. I, I I love Oliver Twist. I think people should talk about Oliver Twist. That's a good um, one.
1: Good. a lot of craft in really Oliver good. Twist. Yeah. Um, but te- you know, t- Tess is a good one to bring up because there's a lot of that kind of stately, disturbing, detached artifice in that film too. That kind of stuck with me a lot when I saw it young.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of artifice. It's it's a re it's a it, it it's a really weird movie because I think it is because. Nastasha Kinsky is like not sympathetic. She's like a, this weird vessel onto which you could project so many things. Um, but she, but I, I it it's it's meant to be a you know this Thomas Hardy tragedy. But I I yeah I, I really like don't feel anything watching it. Ex- but I except for like total admiration for the craft on display. Um, and it feels like it was it feels like that that was a deliberate choice to have her be. This like blank vessel.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. Well, you know a lot about vessel, blank vessels. But that's just one little thing I'm going to say without spoiling anything. Um, See <laughs> oh, so right. how I keep yeah. kind of getting little <laughs> spoilers good. in there without saying anything. Teasing. Um, we had also talked Spoiler. about um, so uh, just going back to some horror filmmakers, um, the fact that you know Romero and Toby Hooper died right next to each other and there's uh, within horror filmmakers are horror lovers There tends to be you're more of one or the other um and it was interesting saying that you love romero's films but you don't consider yourself necessarily a romero guy
2: no i kind of find them to be like a a little dull on an aesthetic level and i i but i i like I, i see the importance and i I really admire them. I, I really, I mean, like *Dawn of the Dead* is pretty fantastic. But yeah, I, I, don't know. I don't, I don't think about him much. And I, I think I, I, I think I actually need to revisit him. And then Toby Hooper, you know, I, I, do, I love *Texas Chainsaw Massacre*, and I really love *Poltergeist*. That's, that's just like a fun time.
1: Yeah, that's like that's, yeah. that's one. Of, is the film that I've seen more than any other film in history.
2: Yeah, I, I get it, just,
1: it. I mean, it's like it's it just happened really that way. Good. <laughs> I just started watching it at an early age, and I think I've seen Poltergeist about 95 times. I watched it
2: for the first time when I was like 25. Really. I, I avoided it for some reason. I think my mom hated it. I think my mo- like I think I was in a video store with my mom once, and she was like, Ugh, Poltergeist.
1: Which actually brings so me I, to a question. You also had a very this, this thing that I connected to very strongly when talking to you. You had a strong bond with your mother as a as a movie watcher. Like she was showing you things at an early age that. No, yeah, perhaps inappropriate for a kid. I went through that experience too.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I I I, I really did. My I mean, my, my my one of my mom's favorite films is Defending Your Life and like she got me on that. She got me on that train. I love Defending Your Life. Um but um a lot of my favorite films are are things I saw for the first time with my mother and we both react we both like responded very strongly to these films. Like, you know, Mulholland Drive was a big deal. We watched that together. The Piano Teacher was like really big. I think I was 15 or 14 when that That was. Extremely
1: inappropriate.
2: We we loved it. That was great. It's great. I love it too. I think the big big two were Dogville, which I think is maybe the best movie of the last 20 years. I love Dogville. I know it's not popular to, like, Lars von Trier right now. <laughs> and I and I haven't seen the house that Jack built. And I am a bigger fan of his older, like, well, his, like, m- middle stuff. Like, everything from The Kingdom, which might be still his best thing ever. Um, the two seasons of The Kingdom. And, you know, Breaking the Waves and the Idiots and Dance in the Dark all the way up to Dogville. Um, and maybe Manderley. And then what, what else? Oh, and Songs from the Second Floor was from I Saw it with My Mom. And that that, like... That changed my life. I I I love that film so much. And I can't wait to see what Roy Anderson is doing next. I know that there's one vignette with Hitler in a bunker. I, that's gonna be cool. <laughs> from from Roy Anderson, that's gonna be exciting.
1: And it, it, and you know, with, with Sweden's history, you know. Roy Anderson is somebody who I think also like with with in terms of art cinema, of the past fifteen years, say has had an incredible influence. On almost all filmmakers, without those film, without people knowing that he's that influential. Like I would say, you could talk to most people, and they won't know who Ryan Anderson is. But I think that what he's done in cinema has just like filtered its way down into almost everybody's work.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's he's almost like a parody of an obsessive perfectionist. You know, his films like take several years to make because I mean they are. Anybody who's seen them knows that they're like uh, basically a series of of like one shot vignettes. But he builds a set around where the camera will be, um, and it's it's always beautifully composed. Every shot is like just this in, this immaculate painting. And he's also what he's doing with like with matte paintings. Sometimes like these sets seem to like just you know extend to the vanishing point. It, I don't know in some ways he makes me think of Powell and Pressburger and just like, you know, he's, he's bringing back that, you know, that, 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 um, the meticulousness, um, of, in, you know, of, in, in production design that I, you know, that I, I, I want more of.
1: Um, well, <clears throat> I'm, i I would say be, considering the amazing accomplishment of, of this film and all these influences and people that you admire, I'm very excited to see what you're going to do next. Um, is there anything that you can divulge about your next project? Well, I shouldn't actually be here right now. I'm
2: here for the, uh, the release of Hereditary. Um, and it's been amazing to do that, but I, I'm, I'm in production. I'm in pre-production for a film I'll be shooting in August, um, in Hungary. And Hungary is, is serving for Sweden. So it's a, it's a movie set in Sweden, um, and I, what can I say? It, it's a, it's like, it's, it's an apocalyptic breakup movie.
1: That sounds great. Also, it all, it all comes back to Sweden. I'm, see, this conversation came completely full circle. Came back to Bergman in Sweden.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: The yeah. film that birthed you.
2: Yeah, the film. Yeah, the film. The, the film. The yeah, the film that
1: that brought me into this world. Going back to the womb with your next film. See, I'm writing all the ad copy for you. Um, I wanted to make sure we had time to take some questions from the audience. Hi, Ari. Thank you for being here. Looking forward to seeing Hereditary tonight.
2: Thank you. Um, has your MFA degree from AFI influenced your career path in any way? And if so. Uh, is a directing degree from AFI uh, beneficiary in any way for you as a filmmaker? I don't know if there's anything more worthless than a directing degree. Um. <laughs> but I can say that I am really grateful for my time at AFI. AFI really, like, it, they, it, it, there's no real theory, you know, there. It's like, it, it's practice. And you go there and you study a discipline. Um, mm-hmm. Every year there are um, 28 directing fellows, 28 writing fellows, 28 um, producers, 28 cinematographers, and then 14 editors and 14 production designers. And so you're all working together on what are called cycle films the first year, and you make three of those. Um, And then you screen each of them for the school, and then you sit up on a stage and they tear you apart um and based on how you know um strong or poor your film was you you get who you get for the next for the next cycle um and people want to work with you know the people who are you know making good stuff, and people like avoid the others like the plague um and so it's very competitive and it can be brutal um and then and then the second year you make a thesis film you make one or if you're the editors if you're an editor or a, a production designer, you're you're doing two of these for each, um, because there are half as many of you. Um, I was lucky in that I was able to do some weird shit there, and I, I, um, and um, I was able to experiment with different styles. You know, I I'm ultimately you know just like I love movies, like that's why I'm making movies is because I want to be in dialogue with them and um and so that was an that was my time to like basically rip off different people and see what was me uh, you know like i love michael haneke and i i tried my my like you know i tried to do that i tried to do my you know kind of like minimalist provocation you know where i don't move the camera and i you know and it it's very clinical and i you know i I didn't enjoy making or wa- watching what I had done. And then I tried, and then I tried to do, you know, I don't know, like, whatever. Um, the next guy that I have you know, always loved. And so by the time I got around to The Strange Thing with the Johnsons, which was my thesis film, I was starting to get a grip on what my style was. Um, and I met uh, my cinematographer, Pavel who who's also one of my best friends there, you know, I I I I I met a producing friend named Alejandro De León, who you know who I work with a lot. You know, um, and uh, I yeah, I just met a lot of people that I'll I'll be working with for a lot of for a long time, and um, uh, it, it was a great experience. But ultimately, when you leave, like you're you're out in the wilderness, and and if anything, you're a little bit more equipped for that because AFI kind of.
1: Aims to replicate the the cutthroat nature of that environment. Do you mind my asking how they responded to? Strange thing about the Johnsons when you first showed it to AFI. Well, you know, so AFI has
2: um, every time when you first go to AFI, there's this there there's the um, oh, what do you call it <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, orientation.
2: orientation. Uh, and they'll show you, and they'll show you some of the films that they're proudest of, and and um, and you know, and and I found that they that that some of them were like, you know, they're often very politically correct, and you know, they're they're kind of like Oscar movies, you know, where they're like about issues, and you know, like so they'll be like in like an inner city school, or or you know, and they're about apartheid, but you know, they're made by, I don't know, you know. Like, <laughs> people go into AFI. And, uh, and there's something almost apologetic about them and I, I, I just thought like, what's the worst thing I can do here? Um, <laughs> and I thought like, oh, like a, a son molesting his dad. <laughs> no, nobody should make that movie. Um, like, how do I make that compelling? Um, and, uh, and what happens is that y- you submit thesis scripts anonymously, um, so anybody can do it. Uh, an editor can do it, a production designer, and about 130 were, were submitted, and, and then um, the faculty greenlights them, and I and somehow the strange thing with Johnson's was greenlit. But what they didn't, what wasn't spelled out in the script, and already there were, I think, like one or two faculty members who were like, I'll resign. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what wasn't laid out in the script was that the, fa- the family was going to be African American, and the reason for that was because uh, in undergrad, my, my like one of my best friends and 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 just w- was an actor who who was who happened to be African American, uh, named Brandon Greenhouse, and I really wanted to cast him, um, and so that's how it started. It's like, okay, well, if he's black, then the family is black, um, and it's very in a t- it's totally incidental that they're black. Like, I'm not. This is not a political film, but then this argument broke out. About whether or not that was okay, and then it became a really interesting argument to me. Where it's like, okay, well, I like this script, and I think these are interesting parts, and I'm giving interesting parts to, you know, like a black cast, and that that like, but otherwise, you know, it, it it is it's apolitical, and of course you can't say that because then it becomes political the minute that the the, the argument breaks out, and I I continue to proceed. Uh or d- I decide to proceed um but it it became an interesting argument and 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 it just it also just felt right it just felt right for the film um but ultimately the the race of the family was incidental, and we, that film had a dollhouse aesthetic too i mean it 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 it's really like rooted in a reality that is f- so far away from this one but yeah, I don't know. Uh, so it u- ultimately the answer is the I think AFI is actually proud of that film and it it um I have heard that they show it to incoming um fellows uh, as like as an example of like you know look look at what you can do here like we don't we don't care. Uh, well, it made its yeah. way around the festivals. So it played the New York Film Festival. It did. Mm-hmm. I and that was a big deal for me. Mm-hmm. And then not Long after that, it was leaked online in like the worst possible way. But, yeah, and now it has a very interesting life
1: online. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Um, Any other questions? So I'm very interested in this film, but I'm not a horror person. I actually actively stay away from horror, and I sort of break those rules sometimes for films like The Witch because I wanted to see the Puritan kind of worldview manifest, and I bro- broke that rule for Get Out. It sounds like a lot has to do with family and, and in, in your, and I wonder if you, and you haven't really talked much about that. I mean, I wonder whether the kind of your, your and both the way you've talked about the dysfunction, this film is about that, but at the same time, your parents are seem very profound influences. I wonder if you can talk a bit about how, your thoughts around some of these questions.
2: So when I first like endeavored to write a horror movie, because I, you know, I, I kind of avoided it for a while as well. I, you know, I I had to ask myself, well, okay, so like, what are my fears? What am I afraid of? And, you know, when I think back on my, you know, my, my worst nightmares, like the nightmares that affected me the most deeply, you know, like those nightmares that once you have them, you have them again, because then you can't get it out. They're, they're usually around somebody in my family dying or somebody in my family changing or becoming like a double of themselves. Um, somebody I don't recognize or they're around me inadvertently or maybe even deliberately doing something that, um, that harms somebody else that's close to me. And then I have to live with the guilt of that. And I, I don't know, it, it just struck me as a no-brainer to, like, to, to go to the home um, if I'm gonna make a horror movie. Um, and I wanted to make an existential horror film, like a film about fears that don't have remedies, like the fears that like, really plague us at, like un- until we die or we come to terms with them somehow. I haven't. <laughs> um, and so that's where this film really comes from. And, you know, the beautiful thing about genre filmmaking is that you can take personal material or, you know, uh, bleaker material, um, like really something that's very difficult, um, and you put it through this filter, and out comes this work of invention. And, you know, what makes it a genre film is, is really just that you had to find the catharsis in that story um, which is fun and, it, and, and can be
1: therapeutic I think we would have time for just one more question so
2: there was a recent interview with Toni Collette where she said that you're the most prepared director she's ever worked with and so <laughs> I know you talked about making a shot list and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to your, your pre-production process well, I mean, the shot list is really the key because in order to make the shot list, you, you have to map out the blocking and you're mapping out what you're, what, what's in the frame, right? So you're, you're mapping out the mise-en-scene. Um, when you're building your most important location on a stage, that's very helpful like, from an economic perspective because we know, okay, we're going to be seeing this wall um but we're kind of neglecting this wall and we'll see it may you know may maybe a couple times but we don't have to spend money there oh okay yeah let's see we're going to be in this room are we going to be seeing the ceiling no let's not build a ceiling so one that just that just helps because we we had a limited budget here i had you know amazing resources for a first film and i am incredibly fortunate but still this is a small a, a small film relatively speaking and so So that way you can, you know, kind of get the most out of your budget. But I don't know. I'm just I'm very neurotic and I'm obsessed with like worst-case scenarios. That's how I end up writing stuff like this. Um, it's usually just so I can like give myself a break and inflict horrible things on like fictional characters as opposed to like project like projected future. S- selves, you know, <laughs> but I just, you know, it's fucking terrifying to show up on on a set with a bunch of people waiting to be told what to do, and I, I so I over prepare, and then I find that I'm that you know, o- you can never really over prepare. You're always a little bit under prepared. So I don't know. Uh, it, the for me the shot list is the key because it just allows us to talk in a much more Specific way. We're not talking about the script or the movie. We're talking about like a movie that we all share and have in our heads, and we're all pursuing the same
1: thing. And just, you know, just to speak to that preparedness, the film, when you see it, has such a precision. There's, there's such a precision of composition in it that is striking right from the very, very first frame. So don't go in late. Um, but also, and this is just the, this is the last thing I'll say, that what I think is particularly amazing is that that precision is um, working with and sometimes against an extremely erratic, frightening family story or horror story where in terms of the script, anything could happen at any time and things happen that you could never possibly see coming and they just sideline you the way they do the characters, but you're always composing things in this very um, frighteningly um, detailed way so that's just my way of congratulating you and um, thank you very much for being here this was a great conversation thank you everybody else thank you
0: you've been listening to the film comment podcast you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes google play or stitcher film comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the film society of lincoln center since 1962 Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription, or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.